Welcome one and all to the not good enough top 10 of 2020. Very special episode. I am Mitch Alexander. I am Tom McLean. I'm Tom Lang. And I'm Evie. And as always, we've got Isaac in our ears, hey. fact-checking the top ten. Hey, wait, wait, the- wait, wait. You know I've been talking to a microphone this whole time. <laughs> like yelling, yelling, hey, 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 stop doing defamation. Stop doing libel. <laughs> I thought you were like our secretary. Have you been on the pod? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been here. And you've been rudely editing me out every single time I talk. McLean's editing skills are so good that every single conversation we've had with Isaac all year has just been edited out. Oh, right. That actually that makes a lot of sense. I'll put you in this episode. We'll okay, see how thanks, we go. Thanks. Isaac's here. Yay! For the top ten of 2020. We have a massive fun episode. We figured, you know what? 2020 was such a big piece of shit, idiot, dumb, fucked piece of shit year. Let's recap <laughs> everything that happened. And we're going to go through the top ten of 2020 this year. Let's get straight in. So yeah, coming in at place number 10 of Not Good Enough's 2020 top 10 list, it is (laughs) Forced Handshakes. (laughs) Now this is one I wanted to nominate because it was just like a perfect opener for the year. Didn't it set the tone? (laughs) It really set the tone, yep. So so this this is a, uh, you know, coming in, coming in at January, uh, January 2, 2020 so so yeah just a bit of background so yeah uh like this was during during the massive bushfires we had in in the end of the end of uh 2019 and and early early 2020 uh yeah some of the and on december uh december 31 uh fires rolled into uh cabago in southern new south wales which was defended by just just four fire trucks and it they, they the fire the fires killed four people and leveled huge parts of the town like you can see pictures of the of the street and it's just like flat. Um and then and then on on January 2nd uh Scott Morrison rolled in to make a make a little appearance and shake some hands and and this was <laughs> a little photo op. Yeah. And this was one of his first appearances since coming back from holiday in Hawaii <laughs> in uh late December and he was faced with a very hostile reaction from the people of Cabago. There's a there's a great great video of of people just just shouting me out saying you know you're not welcome you fuckwit uh, <laughs> and 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 he's just like not not engaging with people just walking away uh, and and so so I think you know he tried to tried to get some photo ops uh, tried to to get some um some uh, handshakes looking looking like a real prime minister but people weren't really well, they weren't really into it and so he resorted <laughs> to just having to force people to to shake his hand so. Just uh, grabbing was, their hands and wiggling yeah, them around. Yeah. It, it was real um, Mark Latham energy. Do you remember <laughs> many years ago when he like just basically broke John Howard's arm off trying to shake his hand? <laughs> like yeah. it definitely gave me that vibe. Yeah. So there's one firefighter who who just refuses and says, "I don't really want to shake your hand." And Scott Morrison just just grabs it and gives it a good old pump. <laughs> he uh, leans down and- so he's leaning down to the sitting down firefighter and pulls his hand yeah. out of his lap. It's ridiculous. And then uh, an, an, another woman who, who after, after he grabs her, her hand and forces the handshake on her, tells him he's only, she's only shaking his hand uh, if he'll increase funding for the firefighting service. I think he just walked away after that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. One of his one of his handlers kind of jumped in between to to you know calm things down a little bit, and you can you can just really hear the pain and the desperation in these pe- people's voices and just the 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 callousness. <laughs> well, we can hear the pain and desperation yeah. in their voices, but Scott Morrison, <laughs> on the other hand, 
<laughs> I'm happy to be meeting my constituents. They're really painful videos to watch. You can see the, yeah, you can see like the smoke is still in the air and, and these people are just desperate and they, they, they just want anything real to help them. And Scott Morrison is not giving them that. He's just, uh, <laughs> he's just trying to, trying to create a photo op. Mm. Pure photo op. It does speak a lot to a how strange a lot of Australians' politicians are in that they can't interact <laughs> with a person normally. Um, like I know people talk mm. a lot about Tony Abbott, but this is just endemic to like Australian politicians um, because they're too afraid of like doing something that will crack the shell or just make them seem like a regular human being. So then when they have to like interact with people in a crisis, they just mm. don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I think Australia exists as a concept for most politicians. It's like an interesting hypothetical <laughs> that they yes. talk about a lot, but but they very rarely have to actually interact with the country that they are supposed to lead. Um, thing thing that I remember from this is just what seemed to be his stress response, where he shuts uh-huh. down and smiles vacantly and shuffles off, and he just mm. kept doing it each time. It was just this, ah, mm-hmm. oh, um, ah, oh, and he just. Walks into the distance. Something's going to be awkward. It's not going to be awkward on camera. That's the rule. Number nine. It's the meme war with China. Oh, yeah. This is a recent (laughs) one. Um, For those of you who've missed, like, the the geopolitical shitstorm, basically, Scott Morrison, and these are all going to be about Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison doesn't (laughs) like China. Okay, he doesn't like China. He respects their commitment to persecuting minorities, but <laughs> there's something about China that he just doesn't trust. Um, and so he's been like badgering them about COVID. He wants an inquiry into, oh, what, what, what happened with COVID? Did that happen? I reckon China did it on purpose. Get the UN in there. Um, and recently he's gotten pretty mad with China because they made fun of him on Twitter. Like, uh, Australia. A bit of backstory, we've been involved in some proxy wars in areas which shouldn't be any of our concern, mostly because America was doing imperialism and it looked fun. Um, so <laughs> there's just some Aussie special forces, you know, some larrikin-trained killers. Uh, they're out there executing prisoners, murdering civilians and children, dishonouring enemy combatants, doing shoeys from the prosthetic leg of a dead man, all that oh. stuff. <laughs> oh, God. Mm, um, real... Real just, good soldiering. Just standard proven war crimes. Um, and China... <laughs> China has the absolute goal to make a political cartoon that says an Australian soldier killed a kid. Okay? And Scott Morrison is outraged and every politician in Australia closes ranks and says, Oh, I can forgive war crimes. But... <laughs> 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 End of sentence. Um, <laughs> they and they just got so pissed off with China for pointing this out, for making a Photoshop of a war crime that we definitely did. <laughs> that China said, "You know what? Fuck this." Uh, turns out, we're your number one trading partner. We're the superpower in your region in this whole hemisphere. Maybe we just don't need any of your import goods. Like, maybe we're just going to cut off Australian coal, lobsters, wine. Maybe we're just going to devastate your export industry. Uh, and Australia went, oh, but, but, well, well, maybe 
we're gonna raise the price of our iron ore. How would you like that? And China's like, seriously, we buy all of your iron ore. Um, <laughs> that's your number one export by a long shot. Maybe you don't want to do that. And Australia went, we'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> I think I think China's real mistake with this was was making it as a as a you know a, a, an image created in Photoshop. Yeah. If it, if if it was just drawn like a like a shitty cartoon like like all the Australian uh, political <laughs> cartoons, mm-hmm. then then they wouldn't be able to call it a, a fake news. Yeah, they should have got Michael Lunig on the job. <laughs> yeah. I would love to see Michael Lunig cover these war crimes. Um, <laughs> oh God. Oh, no. I I do not want to see that little curly man. <laughs> Shooting a duck. <laughs> I think that ScoMo was just playing by the number one rule of sort of like Australian international relations, which is if you're going to respect the diggers, the first step is to dig deeper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, McLean. <laughs> it's absolutely what happens when the, the ScoMo school of marketing and bluster meets a, a country that absolutely does not buy into that shit. Like, China is in no way involved in, like, the Western Murdoch culture wars. They've got their own thing going on. And if you fuck with China, (laughs) China will ruin let's, you. Let's spell it out. That other thing they've got going on is authoritarian communism. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> They're so far past our level. Yeah. It's not really something you can, like, leak a press release to a journalist about. It's kind of bigger than that. Yeah. They will lock up your journalist. Um, <laughs> honorable mention to the um, the Chinese officials on Twitter telling oh, politicians yeah. to stop talking shit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so bitch. good. Lifetime bitch is just going to be in my lexicon forever, maybe. <laughs> I said it before and I'll say it again. If you want the spiciest memes going around, follow those Chinese state posters. They really know how to meme. <laughs> if you want the spiciest memes going around, look up for the ones that are just going to be listed next to Franz Ferdinand. Events <laughs> 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 leading to. Coming in at uh, number eight, it is Anne Rustin. Ooh. Yeah, I got to give this spot to the Minister for Families and Social Services, Anne Rustin. This has been a year where the need for social services has never been more apparent and... Thank God we've had Anne Rustin at the helm to reliably say, no, things are fine. You're not poor. Nobody's poor. You don't need the money. And if we gave some to you, you have to give it back. (laughs) As Minister for Social Services, Anne Rustin found herself holding the reins on a number of really important decisions. Will we extend coronavirus relief to people on temporary visas? What about people on the disability support pension? And she found herself keeping people poor and making people poor every single time. I think it's pretty safe to say that for every single person in poverty in Australia today, it's Anne Rustin's fault personally. So I think that gets her onto the top ten. Is that how you do it? Yeah. <laughs> Give me some here, here, rah, 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 for Anne, rah, 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 Rustin. Is it Anne Rustin who said that the, the budget is great for women as well because uh, <laughs> women drive on roads? Oh, yeah, because women love roads. Women's, women yeah, yeah, do be driving. Increasing road infrastructure and women drive on roads. That also Anne Rustin. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm pretty sure Anne Rustin was also the one that during a Senate inquiry said that uh, social services and Centrelink and the government itself doesn't have a working definition of poverty so they can't really describe people as being in poverty yep. they can't really do that that was her um, and rustin was also the one who got uh, uh man interrupted 
by Scott Morrison. <laughs> oh yeah, she got interrupted while she was trying to cover for the the the, the sexual dalliances of two of the other senior ministers. Oh, spare a thought. Um, <laughs> Poor Anne. <laughs> I mean, I, Anne Rustin to me as well. There's a few of them. Um, this a few people this year that kind of like if it wasn't for this podcast I wouldn't know about them I don't think mm. but like something that's been really fun for me doing not good enough has just been like getting into the muck of politics and just seeing mm. like how many people hold a lot of power in specific areas look I have and to like- I have to disagree with you there Mitch I really hate getting into the muck of politics I find it not enjoyable and disgusting and anyone who says that there are politics wonks should really just look at themselves very hard. Evie- you are a hoglet for it. You love it. No, I hate it. I do it because I feel like I need to explain to people why it's all terrible. That being said, it's really important to pay attention to these kind of recurring characters. And, yeah, Anne Rustin is definitely one of those ones where you're like, wait, why do I know her again? What has she done? I think working in politics research should be kind of like working in an infectious diseases lab. You need to do it to protect the population, not because you love diseases. Yeah. I don't I don't love rubella and want to kiss it on the mouth. No. I do it because I want people yeah. to not have rubella. Not a virus wonk. Evie is in there, like, totally suited up, hazmat suit, going through the, um, like, chemical sprays, and she walks into the lab, and she catches me there after hours <laughs> licking a Petri dish. Like, oh, <laughs> I'm definitely su- really suspicious of people who follow politics like sport, just because they, like the, they like to watch a fun game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I like, like getting into the muck because I feel it's fucking important, but some yeah. people, oh, it's exciting. Once again, once again, I say it all the time on this podcast, if you feel like you are one of these people, please, for the love of God, stop doing that and get an interest in an actual sport. It will be, it will benefit your mental health so much better. There's tons of different kinds of sport out there. You can do that. Yeah, I think just here is right to clarify that we are interested in the sort of sportsy parts of politics in terms of like, oh, look at another fucking thing that Anne Rustin's done. But it's not because she's playing for the other side, like, oh, we're Labour people and she's Liberal people, or like we're Greenies or Socialists or whatever. Mm. It's because that when Anne Rustin kicks a goal in the sport of politics, you know, a hundred thousand people go without food this week. Mm. Like that's that's the outcome. It's not like, hooray, our team. It's like these people have actual you know consequences this 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 person Anne Rustin has consequences <laughs> and they're bad consequences we're not watching the sports cuz we like the mascots it's cuz our child is in the hunger games <laughs> yeah oh my gosh <laughs> speaking of uh treating uh politics like sports uh coming in at number 7 is the state discourse oh man state discourse this year So I always – I'm originally from New South Wales um, and I moved to Victoria about 10 years ago and there is nothing more I hate than state versus state discourse. And this year it was absolutely just went berserk. Mm. It it went berserk for Mm. several reasons. So it started this year with like, you know, um, state government's approach to bushfires and, you know, the kind of funding that was involved. But, of course, with coronavirus, because Scott Morrison is a fucking idiot and can't do anything at a a federal (laughs) level, it was basically up to the premiers to look after their public health, 
response. It was uh, up to them to look after quarantine. It was up to them to look after borders. And this just unleashed a torrent of the most insane state versus state stuff imaginable. Uh, Now, a lot of that played out on Twitter. So uh, it does seem like over magnified um, in terms of like what response affected what um, state's measures. But a lot of it played out in media as well, in in the newspapers, on TV, and in press conferences, like Gladys Berejiklian just like giving little snide asides uh, to um, Dan Andrews. Like, who cares? Your, your actual response in quarantine and for, you know, public health orders matters the most. But all of it became very state-oriented. So this mm. particularly was visible when Victoria had its second wave. So Dan Andrews fucked up. He didn't adequately um, set up the hotel quarantine program. A lot of that responsibility lied with the fact that he used private contractors for security who had multiple jobs. We've talked about this previously in other episodes um, and didn't use the Victorian police who basically said, thanks, but no thanks. This is a bit of a boring job. We'd rather harass people in public housing instead. (laughs) Um, We'd rather, like, you know, bail up people on the street for getting KFC and fine them $5,000. We don't really want to guard the hotels. As a result, hundreds of people died. There was a huge second wave, and it all came down to people going insane, saying, well, Dan Andrews is actually doing the right thing because their labour rusted ons who cannot see anything that their team does wrong. Mm. Or on the other side, you've got the dictator Dan. Yes, exactly. You've got dictator Dan. Or, uh, and, oh, God, the, the other worst thing about it is just <laughs> this is the worst part. How do you feel, Evie? We see where this is going. <laughs> the worst part is that if you can't see anything that's wrong with your team, you start fetishizing them in strange ways. So this year we saw the rise of Ooh, I want to fuck sexy Dan. Oh, <laughs> Brett Sutton, calendar icon. Like, shut up. Oh, my God. You need to, like, go outside. Okay, you can't go outside because there's COVID. But also, like, <laughs> it just the myopic view in which people view politics as either the other team is doing it wrong, therefore my team is sexy and hot and I love them. <laughs> Oh, the state lockdown strategy to hit my back walls. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then the further sort of like that that attitude has now played out when actual corruption has been found. So Gladys Berejiklian has gone through a massive corruption scandal and is still there somehow. But she managed to spin that attitude towards her and say, well, I've had a bad boyfriend and I'm a girl boss and sometimes I just have problems with these two things. And, yeah, so, like, stake discourses just bled into this thing where we have this very confected view of how we view politicians who are supposed to keep us safe, keep us well, but we cannot view it as anything other than New South Wales bad, Victoria good, sexy Dan, dictator (laughs) Gladys. Like, it just, it it gets insane. Like, I I can't imagine how this is going to look like after covid when, you know, the, when the borders open up again, like, are we still going to have this view of like, okay, well, dictator Dan locked us all down, therefore Victoria bad? Like, is that how we're just going to view like state politics from now on? I just, I was just thinking then, like, I wonder if this is 
partly due to the fact that our state politics have been largely sort of ignored and undermined and devalued mm. for so long. And then when we had to lock down the country, we did it by state. And yeah. so we just didn't have journalists with training. We didn't have the discourse on and offline to deal with that. And so people just, yeah, they just scrambled. And in a COVID state of anxiety, just went, oh, I don't know, uh, Dan Andrews is hot. Like, yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we didn't pay attention for so long that when we had to pay attention, we had absolutely no way to frame any of the shit that was happening. Absolutely. And yeah, not to bring it back to Scott Morrison again, but I'm going to bring it back to Scott Morrison. <laughs> like I said earlier, like he has been so inactive and paralyzed and unable to do anything about a COVID response because he really, what he wants to do is do it exactly the same as America, as the UK, mm. where, you know, hundreds of thousands <laughs> of people are now dead. He desperately wants to do it that way but we are so lucky in Australia that so much of our mechanisms of public health and public response is all state-based so he's just been sitting there going hey we're gonna do this and every primary has been like actually no we're gonna do it our own way so like that's why the worst part of state discourse is that it's not necessary they like all these states are actually kind of working in tandem to just not do what Scott Morrison says I don't have power over this state-level crisis. God damn it. I'm going to start my own crisis that I do have power over. I'm going to start an international trade war. (laughs) Then people will have to listen to me. It's important to point out that a lot of the state discourse between New South Wales and Victoria is probably also because Victoria's Labor and New South Wales is Liberal. If they were both on the same side of politics, (laughs) that would not be be happening, I think, because you've got the media and the federal government both having picked a side. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. And, and the same with Queensland as well. And Queensland is mm. Labor, but also there are very Queensland politics is its own ecosystem of yeah. what Labor is. So Yeah, there are very sort of Fitzgibbonian Labor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think part of this is also just not having sports on. Like there's always there's always Ooh. the the the, uh, the rivalry between between Oh the yes, states, absolutely. You know? And so and, it's so much uh, more intense. Exactly. Yeah, there's you can't you can't uh, <laughs> go go, you know, swans swans versus yeah. versus the ruse. You've got to bring it down to the premiers fighting it out. Tens of thousands of like sports dads just frustrated in the first lockdown. It's like, who do I barrack for? Give me something to barrack for <laughs> One more nasty thing that's happened very recently is we've finally been able to keep score between the states. And so now you've got these just terrible people online being like, oh, New South Wales is getting a few more cases. How does that feel? I yeah. hope some people die. That's the final mm. thing I want to talk about with this state versus state discourse. The nastiest way in which it's propagated is people like cheering on outbreaks in other mm. states. Seriously, what is wrong with you? You need to step back and have a really hard look at yourself. Uh, if you're sort of you know, sports ball brain when it comes to politics is, oh, look, uh, New South Wales did it wrong and they've got an outbreak now. Isn't it funny that all these people have gotten sick? It's like that that could easily happen here again. All all that mm. needs to happen is like Dan, um, Dan Andrews uh, fucking up the quarantine program once more and then we have another outbreak. It's just the, the hubris involved mm. is really <laughs> bad. Spot number six in the 2020 roundup, it's the uh, gas-led recovery. Ah, uh, so, all right. <laughs> Just laying immediately, the gas-led recovery. Uh. <laughs> so, okay, <clears throat> 2020, 
let me set the scene for those of you who haven't been here. Whole, yeah, we've got whole industries crashing. We've got a global national pandemic. We've got people out of work. Tourism's down. Universities are shut down. International students are stuck. People are poor. We've we've had a bushfire. We've had royal commissions. We've got pedophiles in the Vatican. We've got <laughs> that one. That one's not been so much a national issue, but it. Um, <laughs> And Scott Morrison has taken a good hard look at the country and he's gone, what is the most important thing I need to focus on right now? What does this country need more than anything? We need more gas wells. Woo! Hell yeah. We need gas more than anything. And so in the early stages of the pandemic, his big move was he set up the COVID commission. To, 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 to oversee Australia's economic recovery. But they weren't. He handpicked a bunch of gas and mining guys to tell him, specifically, we should do more gas mining. Um, and he went, more gas mining? Sounds great. Thanks, guys. I picked to tell me that. Um, let's fucking just go ham for gas. <laughs> Every state and federal area in Australia is just... Absolutely gangbusters for gas now. We are just rubber stamping new gas wells everywhere. We're just throwing money at these gas companies. And this is in a time when the whole world is using less oil and gas, is actively trying to move towards a zero carbon world, and oil and gas prices are crashing. Like, the gas industry in Australia is massively unpopular at, like, at you know, at the level of people who don't make decisions about gas. Like, all of the population of Australia is like, no, we don't want fucking gas wells in our farmlands. It's environmentally devastating. It's also one of the lowest employing industries in Australia. It employs (laughs) 0.2% of Australian (laughs) workers, right? And they say, oh, it makes jobs for rural communities. Rural communities, the number one employer is healthcare and aged care. Okay, even in areas with gas wells, where gas is the number one, like, industry, apparently, it still is, at best, about equal with healthcare and aged care. But he's not, he's not made a, an aged care-led recovery. No, no, that might be too useful. <laughs> no, don't, don't talk to the federal government oh, no. about aged care at all, actually. That's not their problem. <laughs> Leave um, that right out. Now, keeping in mind, also, all the gas we mine, any new gas we mine, is entirely for export. Right, because Australia already is the world's biggest gas exporter, and we mine more than three times more gas than we need by companies that usually pays about zero tax. Um, mm-hmm. I found a fun stat in 2017. Sounds about right. In 2017, Telstra, the Telstra company, paid 20 times more tax than every oil and gas company in Australia combined. Jesus. Right. <sighs> um, and so yeah, we are we are just a country that has decided. We're going to do everything in our power. There is no red tape too important to cut to get this gas out of our ground onto some boats and off to whoever wants to buy it. For China! Cheaper, oh. for, <laughs> for cheaper than we pay for it here. You can buy Australian gas cheaper overseas than you can in Australia. So that's what we're up to. Meanwhile, the government wants an inquiry into why banks don't want to lend to fossil fuel companies like they used to. What could that be about? They've got to lend it. They're leading our recovery. <laughs> <laughs>
it really was one of the most brazen things of 2020, I reckon. Like, because yeah. because it, 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 the gas led recovery made you think of the things that we're recovering from. Like, mm. we were already mm. in a, a minor recession before COVID hit. Then we had a global pandemic, and we had lots of out of work. And just to have Scott Morrison just walk up there with that big old grin of his and be like, "Gas, pardon." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my and gas this- mates are running it. What? Yeah, what What are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do? It's like, we're going to fucking podcast about it. But yeah. generally, <laughs> it was just so bald-faced. Just, nah, fuck it, gas. And it, 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 gas. they make it sound like the gas industry is going to help the Australian economy and people. But in reality, it's the exact opposite. Our entire economy yeah. and population are helping the gas industry. We are keeping it on life support. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, we need gas to help us like recover economically. So we've got to throw all of our money at it because if we don't, if we don't prop it up, what are we going to recover from? <laughs> I think your your theory from last week that it's uh, that it's actually they're doing it because aliens makes a lot of sense, Lang. It's the only one that that makes any sense to me. When you eliminate the impossible, Isaac, whatever remains. <laughs> <laughs> Coming in at uh, slot number five, you've heard about this one. It's the uh, the coronavirus. Hell yeah! Oh, yeah, damn. This one is kind of a twofer. Uh, so it's it's you know it's meant to be the top ten, but this one's really two elements in it. So one, the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV two, mm-hmm. and two, the disease it causes, COVID nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> <laughs> I just put this one in there because I thought it's been a big year for coronavirus. Mm. It has had some big wins. <laughs> I was going to say, McLean, for the <laughs> listeners who may not be aware, what is... <laughs> well, it started out as kind of an indie thing. It's sort of, uh, end of end of last year, everyone mm. was like, oh, you know, China's doing a thing. Keep an eye on that. But, you know, it really spread worldwide. And now it's just everywhere. It went viral. <laughs> this next bit, well, I reckon. <laughs> Come on, guys, it was right there. I do, I do want to say we got a um a, a lovely message from someone in like maybe June, July, um, which was kind of just like, oh fuck, I went back and listened to a whole bunch of older episodes, and you guys mentioned COVID nineteen in like January or February, and you were like, and Scott Morrison's gonna fuck it up. Hopefully, the states can save us, and like we 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 did say that, and we, we were did right. say we're that on the money. What a bold prediction we made. Betting, betting on Scott Morrison <laughs> fucking it up, though, is that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty easy bet. Yeah. <laughs> I actually remember that episode because I remember um, I had been following some of the news about COVID from um, China and in Italy at that stage, and I remember thinking, "Oh man, this is really fucked." But I, surely, like Australia is like gonna handle this. And then I remembered Scott Morrison. It's like, oh mm. man, <laughs> how how, how yeah. bad could this possibly get? And yeah, like I remember talking about that on on the podcast that that week and thinking, yeah, maybe maybe it could be like bird flu. Maybe it, maybe it wouldn't be like you know as bad as we think it's gonna be. And then next minute, the gang self isolates. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm a I'm a yeah. huge hypochondriac, so I had my eye on COVID from. Basically late the late December. Yeah. Just being like, oh, this this is gonna be a pandemic. Yeah. My wife's like, I think you're being a hypochondriac. I was like, I know I'm being a hypochondriac. Yeah. <laughs> but I was right. M- I was a now. right hypochondriac That's this time. The good thing about being a pessimist is when you when you're right, you're you feel real good about it. Yeah, I feel real good about calling coronavirus. <laughs> I want to put it on the record here that my husband also was following it and in February we went for a shop 
and we actually mm. stocked the pantry. And oh, even yeah. then in the back of my head, I was like, this feels excessive, even as someone who like likes to be prepared. And he was right. Because <laughs> like literally a few weeks later, there was a toilet paper shortage and we had toilet paper on hand. I was genuinely reading up like how to stock for an apocalypse sort of things and, and seeing the bits that were like, don't cause a run on the shops. Just every time you go to the shops, get a little bit more of the sort of yeah. staplesy bits. And I'd been doing that since the bushfire smoke because I said I'm a hypochondriac yep. and I was like, I don't think I'm going to be getting this bushfire smoke. I think it's going to be permanent. I'm not going to be able to go outside because <laughs> of the smoke for maybe months. So I better stock up. And then the pandemic happened. I was like, all right. So, you know, a different thing, but still sure. I think that's interesting because i did the same thing and my partner was also like i don't know i mean eh, maybe it's a thing so what is it about like potential global catastrophe that turns like dudes rock into like bowerbirds <laughs> like it's just this like no no, got, no no we've got to get more lentils come on love let's get let's let's stock up on the beans and the toilet paper like, i was very proud of my uh, my collection of tins in my cupboard yeah. which I've, I've, I've mostly run down by now I'm keeping yeah. it stocked up. Shout out to the Indian grocery store that we went to where we bought like a bunch of like a big bag of rice and lentils and stuff oh, yeah. like that. It wasn't really crowded. Everyone was very like, you know, orderly and bought like just a small amount of everything. That bag of rice lasted me the entire year. So shout that out to that. That was a point of the stockpiling mania that I had completely forgotten about is the racism mm. where people were like, mm. oh my god, there's no toilet paper, yeah. there's no mm. staple foods, what are we going to do? Safeway's sold out. People are like, you know that nobody's going to Asian groceries and they're basically all completely stocked up with everything. <laughs> oh, I don't know about going to an Asian grocery though. What about Wuhan? Nah, it's... <laughs> yeah. Because on the other the side, good stuff is. I remember as well, part of the racism, like on the other hand, was the, Ch the Chinese are stocking up toilet paper and we get our toilet paper <gasps> from China. And, and it's like, no, no, no. They have mountains of toilet paper in the fucking warehouses. They just can't ship it out to like Coburg Woolies quick enough. No, it's some other race or some things you fucking idiot shut up just at every single level of this response it's been like the problem is it's got to be from racism it's like no no it's just logistics oh no that's another racist problem no no it's just logistics it's racism all the way down yeah another another thing i remember with the stockpiling scares were like um just completely made up of stories of people going uh, to regional shopping centers and mm. like um, mm. going on buses to get oh, stuff yeah, yeah and buses, a lot of the of asians yeah buses of asians um, yeah. Just insane stuff. Amazing. Entirely, entirely unbased on anything. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the last little bit that I want to talk about, about the, the stockpiling craze, was going to Woolworths and seeing the entire pasta aisle completely bought out, mm -hmm. except for a fully stocked section of butterfly pasta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one wants that shit. That's for babies. <laughs> Even in disaster, <laughs> everyone's just like, nah. <laughs> Number four in the top 10 of 2020, it is industrial action and union wins. Yes. Hell yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, 2020 was pretty shit, but I wanted to specifically call out some of the amazing unions and some of the amazing actions that they have done through 2020, specifically because over 12 months, it can start to seem like, you know, some isolated things are happening or one good thing happened and then you forget about some other stuff, but putting them all together here kind like my hope is that it will remind everyone that unions got a lot of good shit done this year and a lot of that was workers standing together 
like a bright spot for me for 2020 was watching a whole bunch of workers from a bunch of different industries just say, I absolutely will not suffer and I will not let my fellow worker suffer. Will you stand with me against this bullshit? And a bunch of people just went, yes, we will. Um, specifically, I want to call out um, what we're calling the new unions, which is the RAFWU, the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, the uh, Renters and Housing Union, of which I'm a proud member, and the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, who are our favourite union here on the podcast, I think. Um, it was genuinely- <laughs> I think we just like them all. I don't think- it's, they're the best. Um, it, was, it, it was fucking invigorating and it, it made my chest swell with pride so many times to see workers- just workers working together as it was and and taking a stand against shit. So I want to read out some of the um the cool things that happened this year with industrial action. There was the Wyong Woolies workers winning their wages with a walk-off. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. Start strong, Mitch, good one. <laughs> there was the Rafwu taking McDonald's to court and winning. There was the Australian Unemployed Workers Union getting in a bunch of Senate submissions and running a mutual obligation strike against Centrelink. Speaking of Centrelink, there were the Centrelink workers themselves that released a letter saying that they disagreed with the work they're being made to do. The Renters and Housing Union helped their members uh, reduce debt by over $20,000 all up and they helped them organise legal cases in VCAT where landlords were trying to kick them out and the court just said no you have to keep them in there until March with absolutely no question Um, the spotless laundry workers walked off the job over safety concerns very early on and they won their um, they won their security the Canberra garbage truck drivers went on multiple strikes through the year for pay increase there was a Mitre 10 stop work that was won in less than four hours there was the bus driver a stop work that was one before it started. They just threatened <laughs> to go on strike and they went, no, no, you can have what you want, you can have what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there was also the um, NTEU, which is the university sector union. There was uh, wage theft, which was rampant throughout all the universities. 2020, that, that came to a head. And um, at Melbourne University, they had organised a protest out the front of the uh, vice-chancellor's publicly paid-for house, which is, again, just super weird. And the morning of... The university just went, oh, okay, yeah, no, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll pay you back. There were the Coles workers that went on indefinite strike after being locked out of their work sites. Uh, Coles workers have had to be, uh, have been striking since March of this year because Coles have just been absolutely fucking them. Um, the Maritime Union of Australia went on strike all up and down the East Coast for pay rises and they fought against both the government, Patrick's, their bosses, and the media to try to secure their rights. And the Australian Workers Union, the AWU, organised 12 different stop work sites and organised the workers there and helped them win their rights through the year. It's it's incredible. This year has sucked for a lot of reasons, but holy fuck, like, you can see it right here. Unions can get results. You just have to step up to the plate and work with people. It's right there. Yeah, what an awesome wet list. I, I want to shout out specifically the the sort of the parts of those stop works that weren't even, you know, somebody getting up on a table and, you know, holding up a fist in solidarity and saying, we will stand up for our rights. Those Some of those strikes just started with some person being like, well, I'm not fucking going in there. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that's sort of spreading. Like, the, the, a strike is just workers standing together. It's not even necessarily like a big, bold, you know, proclamation. It's just workers being like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's really, like, anyone who's involved in one of those strikes can now see, like, oh, you can just not do it. That's yeah. the fundamental part. It, there's not a thing, like, organizing and, 
you know, forming a union and, and that sort of thing are all really good, but they're they're all really good because they are a vehicle towards just being like, no, we're not going to do it. That's yeah. the sort of the, the 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 golden core of all of them is 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 people just saying no and and ex- actually exerting their power, and everything else is just a structure around that. I, th- I think as well a big thing to keep in mind. We've said it a lot in this podcast is just start. A big thing is just starting something, and you'll be surprised how often people come along with you. If you've got a, like shit conditions at work, and you're thinking hmm, I don't like this, I don't feel safe, what do my other co-workers think? It's very fucking likely that they agree with you. And like you said, McLean, so many of these places were just a bunch of them being like, I reckon this is fucked, do you want to not do it? And they're like, actually, yeah, no, I don't want to do it. And then it just spreads. And the bosses can't do shit at that point. Um, Yeah, in a bunch of those situations, the unions actually came in after the fact. The workers walked off and then they went, fuck, we should get a union to help us out. And they called them up and then the unions come down. Yeah, that's not at all to say like, oh, it's the unions aren't really doing anything. Like, they absolutely are, but the, the, the core of it is just that, actually, the action. Well, that's what mm. a union is. This is yeah. the yeah. thing. We've, we've been so <laughs> de- like destroyed mentally in this country on our perceptions of what like labor rights and industrial action is. It is just workers banding together. The structures and the ACTU and all the rest of it. That's all there. But a union is just workers banding together to secure their collective rights. That's it. That's yep. all it is. Yeah, it's 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 workers standing up and saying, if if you say I don't want to do this, then I will agree with you, and yeah. I will also stand with you, and I'll support you. What what number are you up to, Isaac? Uh, we're up to number four. Number four, solidarity. <laughs> we're up to the the top three now. The heavy oh, hitters. The top three of the top ten of twenty twenty. <laughs> <laughs> number three. We've had some strong showing from this uh, previously. It's uh, sports. Sports. <laughs> yeah, sports. Now, I I feel like this is a controversial choice that sports is a big hitter of 2020 in a year where there was not really much sports going on anywhere. That being said, uh, we started off the year with a lot of sports uh, controversy. In fact, this very podcast started the year uh, talking about a sports controversy. And, of course, I'm referring to sports rorts, uh, which is – the strangest and biggest political scandal this year, aside from the novel coronavirus, um, <laughs> because it was just an ongoing sort of. It was one of those things where it started like with like a, a just you know a, a revelation of this misappropriated funds, and it just kept on spiraling and spiraling, and more of these misappropriated funds were found, and it was just a very like, and of course, as is the case for a lot of Australian political scandals. Nothing happened to any of the players. I look forward to the miniseries that'll come out in five years about this. <laughs> <laughs> It'll yeah. be called something asinine like spreadsheets. Yeah. I feel like that's that's one of the, the, the real themes for Australian politics in 2020 is that consequences are for losers. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that Sports Rorts really kicked that off where Bridget McKenzie resigned from the cabinet but didn't lose her spot as a minister and... That that was the sum total of the whole consequence, and that really just set in stone. Like, you don't have to own up to it or accept consequences at all. You can just like do you know like wave like a little flag that's like, oh, I lost. Oh no, and that's your whole sort of response. And everyone will be like, well, she's done her time. She waved her little flag. Let's let's let her off. Yeah, and and she's like. 
you know, she she moved to the backbench and she's not, like, you know, not no longer the uh, deputy leader of the National Party as a result of sports rorts, but those are not real consequences. You know, she she was the minister of sports for like about two years, I think, um, under Turnbull, and nothing has actually happened to her as a result. And yeah, that, that's reflective of every single thing that has happened this year when someone has found to have committed outright crimes or just otherwise egregious uh, has corruption b- or pork yeah, barreling. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure Mackenzie's going to be back. One one more cabinet reshuffle, and you know she'll be back back on top. It's been an auspicious start to the year for sports in the form of sports rorts. Uh, there have been other revelations throughout the years of, you know, other spots in which funds were misappropriated. But once again, nothing has actually happened to any of those people. The real painful sport story for me was that the, the NRL island. Ah, uh, so <laughs> with, with, the, with the novel coronavirus, we had a weird period where Australia was the only country in the world that had any ongoing sports that was happening. Um, and this was, really? this was very interesting because um, – once uh, everyone had moved to sort of quarantine the states separately, uh, a lot of talk happened um, to discuss how they could continue going ahead with sports and because they would lose a lot of money from broadcasting, from advertising, from uh, players not getting any salary for the year, for, you know, like there's a lot of money that goes into national sports, of course. Um, So with Australia not being as heavily affected as, say, the United States or as Europe, some of the national sports basically swung into a alternative plan where they could have quarantine hubs. Now, the AFL, uh, for about March, April, May, before they closed, they stopped the, the initial games of um, the season for the AFL, but they ended up having quarantine hubs set up in Perth and in Queensland. And for a bright, shining moment, the AFL was the only national sport being played in the entire world. And America was forced to pay attention to our very strange um, <laughs> code of football, which was great. Like, it, like it, just seeing, like, you know, people who are used to seeing, like, football players with, like, helmets and padding and stuff like that be completely horrified that we love to bonk heads and, like, you know, get it's concussions a, it's up a good close. Sport. As, it's as a someone who doesn't really follow sport, it's a good one. Yeah. Exactly. It's a very it, – it, because, like, AFL is basically, like, the refinement of, like, a lot of football codes into something that's, like, fast-paced uh, and very active and a lot of fun to watch. And, yeah, it, it was great. It, and it was very unfortunate that we did not get NRL Island, which was the initial plan seriously considered by NRL officials of having <laughs> the NRL League set up on an island <laughs> – <laughs> Can I just tell a crazy sports story that uh, – does anyone mind? Yeah, yeah, no, go, go for, for it. it. Yeah, no, the, the, can I just tell this crazy sports story that um, isn't Australian even, but it was a thing that happened – and it's not even physical sports, this is eSports, but oh. it was a thing that happened um, <laughs> in September that was – just crazy where it was the League of Legends uh, American mm. – well, like playoffs – uh, like the 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 sort of the American Championship, and uh, they were all playing remotely because the t- the players were all isolating because of COVID. Uh, but then the match had to get paused halfway through because the heat waves that were happening in LA at the time took out one of the players' power, <laughs> and he had to move to a different like facility to be oh. able to continue playing the game. Mm. And it's just such a fucking like th- <laughs> the whole like. 
LA's collapsing power infrastructure, heat waves from climate change, the isolation from the pandemic, causing this esports game to to like championship to pause for for forty five minutes. Just like there's so many like oh wow the world's really fucking collapsing mm-hmm. hey yeah. sort of things all cl- crashing into each other at once. That's my sports moment. For esports the year. is a really <laughs> interesting one for global politics. Every now and then someone says go Hong Kong or something, and then an entire country <laughs> has to decide what they're doing about sports. <laughs> 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 I'll say my my quick little uh, sports story from the year. The only thing I really paid attention to, which speaks to the American mindset, was a basketballer who was mocking COVID, and he went into a press uh, like a press gallery, and he licked all the microphones as a yeah. joke. Then tested positive for COVID and essentially shut down basketball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, th- that was the, that was the greatest thing about like the hubs. Um, so when they had the quarantine hubs for the AFL, uh, a lot of news stories about basically players doing anything they could to break the rules and either get their partner in to have sex or leave to go have a bar fight or just (laughs) Just stuff like that. Like, I definitely definitely don't approve of, like, having to fine people for leaving the hub because it was, like, it seems like it was a very strange environment where people had a lot of mental health problems and, like, you know, you isolate a lot of people isolated away from their families up in Queensland for several months of the year. It just seemed like a very strange and weird and stressful time. So I felt – I do feel very sorry for them in a way that I know a lot of um, sympathy doesn't get given to, you know, very highly paid sports people, but it is a strange year um, and – it, I would. I cannot wait to see what the book is going to be about the quarantine hubs because <laughs> just imagine the kind of Lord of the Flies stuff that was going on in there. Oh yeah, <laughs> God. Second place. It's a heavy hitter. Uh, insecure work. Now, uh, yeah. So twenty twenty was a year that really proved the the degree to which we rely on people in underpaid, insecure roles. And the degree to which the the systems that rely on those those people fail to protect them at every step, and I think I think the 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 handling of of hotel security um, mm. is yeah a really great example of of these failings. Um, in in Melbourne, uh, when when the the hotel security was being organised, uh, guards were hired through several layers of subcontractors, and eventually recruited via WhatsApp. Using, you know, just just people people getting WhatsApp messages. Hey, do you want to? I'm looking looking for looking for some people to work. Uh, and they they were told to to bring their own PPE, uh, their own masks and mm-hmm. and other things, and received no infection control training. And then because these these workers were were underpaid, you know, not 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 given proper training, and so they were working multiple jobs. So so guards were working across multiple hotels. At least one guard was uh, 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 working working with with coronavirus symptoms um, and only got tested after he, he was driving driving back from work and uh, saw a a sign on the road that said, "Hey, if you got symptoms, maybe think about getting tested." Fuck. And and then um, even even after that, you know, he he needed to eat, and so he then went on to deliver Uber Eats because mm. uh, because. You know, like, like because of insecure uh, work. Like, yeah. Because of insecure work. It didn't have um, a choice. Exactly. Um, and then, so yeah, I mean, and and that 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 the the, the failures of that of that system led to eight hundred people in in Victoria dying. 
Yeah, I mean, there's also like the the people working at like you know one McDonald's and then going to a different McDonald's mm-hmm. yep. because yep. that like McDonald's also shuffles their staff around sites even mm-hmm. during the pandemic. There's like all of the meatpacking plants and so, like just anyone who couldn't take a day off because yep. of their insecure economic position, mm-hmm. despite demonstrably having a job. That's the whole problem. Th- they they couldn't take those days off, and so mm-hmm. they ended up propagating the virus. Yeah. And so, so in, an example of of refusing to learn a- anything, uh, the 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 outbreak in Adelaide in November, uh, this was this was well, you know was, they managed to contain it relatively quickly, but yeah, it was caused by by a a hotel guard who then went on to work at a hmm. at a pizza bar when 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 talking to contract tracers lied about that because probably I mean we don't really don't really know, but but my guess would be that he was being paid under the table there because because why else would you lie about that and and that led to to the 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 contract tracers in in south australia thinking that the the outbreak was much more widely spread and and the the, the premier of, of south australia basically said straight up i don't you know we don't you know we don't think that insecure work is a problem mm. the the <laughs> Yeah, the problem is lies. Exactly. Right? Yeah, the problem is lies. Yeah, this this led to this this poor this poor guy just being, uh, you know, hounded in the press, and and you know, like I can't imagine what 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 that would be like. It's just just nightmarish. I think <laughs> a real theme during this entire pandemic, all over the world, really, but especially in places like America, England, and Australia is that we live in a society and your society <laughs> is only as strong as the weakest, most uh, vulnerable parts of it. Um, mm. And when so much of the actual important parts of your society, like supermarket workers, delivery drivers, you know, security guards in quarantine hotels, when those people aren't supported, when they are not enabled to be safe, your entire society is unsafe. It doesn't matter how rich your CEOs are, if... Everything that actually is important to a society, like teachers and nurses and food, if those things can't survive properly, your entire society is broken. Yeah. I'm not sure about that, Lang. I mean, it's not the government's <laughs> position to ensure that people's sort of needs are adequately met. I think we should pin all of our hopes on vulnerable individuals uh, sacrificing Making, yeah. themselves completely for the greater good. I think that's mm. the safer and more sensible option. Mm-hmm. Well, that was this is the other thing that the pandemic exposed about insecure work is that even without the pandemic, insecure work would be a fucking problem for this country and yeah. our economy and our systems. Like mm. the reason why we are in such dire economic straits that they will continue to talk about forever and ever is because the lowest paid people had even less money to spend to keep the economy moving. Trickle down doesn't fucking work ever. We know this. Yeah. Doesn't matter how much revenue these these companies or how many how much profit these companies have, doesn't matter how rich a CEO is, if the lowest strata of your economy are not continually moving capital around and money around, the whole thing fucking collapses. And mm-hmm. it just it, it was stark relief this year. Yeah, mm. it's just that for one little moment here, that bad effect on your underpaid workers could actually affect other parts of your upper parts of society because of a virus. Yeah, and I think that the, the the government's response to to these to these you know to to the the coronavirus situation also pushed more people into insecure work. Like mm. in a in a two month period uh, from September, five uh, food delivery drivers were killed. Mm. Uh, that they, they were you know riding 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 
bicycles or, or motorbikes. Um, and, and they, these are, they, that, that, that just isn't a job that's worth dying for. Right. And, and these, these are people yeah. who have been like, like, according to the, uh, the transport workers union, delivery workers earn, uh, often $10 an hour. That's Fuck. half of, half of Australia's minimum wage. And we barely heard about it. Exactly. If it, if it was five cops or firemen or teachers or nurses or CEOs, that would have been all over the papers. But mm-hmm. delivery drivers just are left to die. And and these and these are these are people who have been forced into that work. They the they're often often people who um you know they're 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 um, students or or migrants who aren't um uh, able to get the the coronavirus support that that um yeah that that you know that that the 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 government did have for for some people, and and so certain sections of society were locked out of that. And and forced into forced into situations that killed them. And the thing with those, uh, it's not just insecure work that those kind of deaths um, sort of throw um, light on. It's also just the structure in which we um, form. You know, the the passage in which people move about or carry on their day to day lives. Like, you know. Melbourne is like probably better than most cities, but we are so hostile to anything that isn't, you know, big cars on the road, mm-hmm. um, a very mm-hmm. p- anti-people uh, sort of architecture and having to reckon mm-hmm. with that, like, oh, you know, these people are trying to work and, you know, live their lives and they're killed in ways because we're just so hostile to people just being on the road in a way that's safe. You know, mm-hmm. Like it's just so much of our structure is just so anti-ethical to people um, and we just don't want to think about that when uh, people die. Yep. I'll also point out one last way that this is a ridiculous way to set things up is that there's sort of like this competition between services that we've got like Uber Eats and DoorDash and Deliveroo and yeah. Foodora and friggin' all these. When like, all right, we as a society can agree that having a delivery app is useful, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so why doesn't the government just make a delivery app. It's just a fucking map and a messaging system. Like, Nationalise it. Orders queue. Just do that. <laughs> and then everyone can just work for that app and get guaranteed protections and guaranteed wages, knowing that they're doing a thing that society has agreed is useful, that there's no value in competition between because they're literally just, a, you know, the, the restaurant makes the food and then the person brings the food to you. Done. There's no bells and mm. whistles to add. Yeah. It's so trivially nationalizable. Mm. That like the, the benefits are so clear. The downsides there are no downsides. Well, <laughs> but we still haven't done and, it. Why not? And it's, and it's something that we you know like like in 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 2020 we relied on on food delivery because people weren't allowed to leave their houses in at yeah. certain times. You would be denying a foreign tech company the ability to make profit <laughs> from our economy. <laughs> we wouldn't even be denying them that they could exist. We could just make a national one, and if they want to compete, then it's you know free reign in the marketplace, whatever. <laughs> I really thought this was the year that we go- we were going to have to reckon with Uber as a force um, hmm. because they rely on you know subverting all illegal protections for not only like passenger transport but now food transport as well Mm, um and it would really you would think that this would have been the year where we would finally say enough is enough you've basically not only um attacked the legal structure that's in place um you've Mm. made it so that people depend on you and then take away the livelihood of the people that are working for you and your only response is to just make sure that they're not employees so you don't have to be responsible when they die but here we are (laughs) 
And I'd just like to remind everyone, just as a, a closing thought, that as part of the uh, the coronavirus response, the federal government uh, has also moved to allow bosses to change uh, workers' uh, hours, duties, and location arbitrarily for 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 part-time workers, not just for not just for casual workers. So it's you know it's moving moving up up or down the chain depending on how you how you want to think about it. Good stuff. Everyone's being pushed into insecure work. <laughs> Yay. <sighs> GDP is huh. good though. Is it? Yeah, we had a 0.01% increase in GDP <laughs> unexpected in the fourth we're quarter, at, Lang. It's real good. We're out of the recession, Lang. The line went up. The line went up. Well, that'll be good for the Cayman Islands. So the winner of the top 10 of 2020, it is RoboDebt. I thought you guys were going to jump on with a with a clap there for Robo Debt. <laughs> nah. I think good nah. job, Robo Debt. Robo Debt. Robo Debt is depressing, um, but I think it's good at number one of the not good enough top ten because it just has everything <laughs> in it that not good enough sort of does, or like we talk about. Like it's just an encapsulation of every single thing in microcosm. I think it's the fuckedest thing. It's the fuckedest thing in every single way. The I think the only way it could be more not good enough if it was a niche topic that not many people had heard about. That's literally it. It's got everything else. Um, so let's do a super brief recap of what RoboDebt is. So RoboDebt was an automated Centrelink debt recovery system. Uh, they used to have humans checking the numbers to see if fraud or mistakes were being made with Centrelink payments and RoboDebt just automated that process. It was initially rolled out at the very end of 2016 and almost instantly was revealed to have massive flaws in it. Uh, the algorithm they used was total shit. It was telling people they owed money when they definitely didn't. It was issuing debt to dead people and to disabled people who should have been exempt and it was combined at the time with a truly fucking horrific scare campaign that made it seem like if you didn't pay your debt back your life was essentially ruined um it was i think extortion in a sense um and and tragically people took their own lives because of this robo-debt. They would get a letter in the mail saying that they owed the government sometimes tens of thousands of dollars. And these are people that, you know, for the most part, had to at least have been on Centrelink for a small while. They can't pay that shit back. They're not in a position to do that. It was, it was, it was, it was fucking terrifying. Um, the government was told in 2017, months after robo-debt started, that the program was not only not working properly, but that it was also unlawful. And yet they continued to do it. Um, from 2016 to 2020, there were some really amazing grassroots organizers fighting back against uh, RoboDebt as hard as they could. If you ever heard of the uh, Not My Debt campaign, that was against uh, RoboDebt. And also the Australian Unemployed Workers Union held some massive campaigns about RoboDebt and trying to drag it into the, uh, the public consciousness. And at the end of 2019, there was a very, very small glimmer of hope. Bill Shorten, who had just come off the back of losing an unlosable election, <laughs> announced that, with his help, the law firm Gordon Legal would be capitalising on all the hard work done by those activists by launching a slam-dunk, unlosable, class-action lawsuit against <laughs> the government on behalf of everyone who had had one of these craven, horrible debts raised against them. So that brings us into 2020 and what happened with robo-debt in just this year with this class action lawsuit bubbling away in the background. In May of this year, Government Services Minister Stuart Robert announced that not only would robo-debt be scrapped, but that the government would pay back 
470,000 debts mm. to the tune of $721 million. But even with that, the class action lawsuit was still going ahead. Stuart Robert was still to be found partly responsible for this mess in the eyes of the law. We had something to look forward to. In June of this year, Scott Morrison publicly apologised for any hurt or hardship caused by robo-debt. Save it, cunt. We're going to get this slam dunk guilty verdict from the class action lawsuit first, and then you can cry your crocodile tears. In Senate inquiries in July, the former head of Services Australia, Catherine fucking Campbell, had the fucking gall to say she didn't even know what robo-debt was. Fuck you, Catherine Campbell. There's blood on your hands and you'll have to reckon with that when you have your day in court because in July of this year, the class action lawsuit was still going ahead and all of those motherfuckers have to reckon with what they've done to their fellow man when this unlosable class action lawsuit with thousands of claimants finally goes to public trial. And on November 16th of 2020, a day before the trial was set to start... Bill Shorten, with his trademark vacuous shit-eating grin, announced that the federal government had struck a deal with Gordon Legal and that they would settle out of court. That's how the robo-debt saga ends in 2020, with no one going to trial, no one being held responsible, no one forced to apologise, and no one found legally guilty of wrongdoing and with no justice for anyone who deserves to have it. On the plus side, though, Gordon Legal got a fairly fat paycheck, and the Labor Party avoided being responsible for setting a precedent of holding corrupt and incompetent politicians to account, which would really (laughs) fuck up their game plan. I I have one point I want to make on this. The whole thing, from top to bottom, is absolutely fucked. Every single minister that is involved in this in the Liberal Party, it was started by Scott Morrison, don't forget that, Every single one of those people is a piece of shit and they know it. But the thing that gets me the most worked up about robo-debt, and it is my hobby horse, I'll admit to that, is how fucking useless the Labour Party are in this. Yeah. Bill Shorten piggybacked off of the hard work done by activists to try and rehabilitate his image after losing the unlosable election And he just continued to parrot afterwards, him and Gordon Legal, about how we reckon we've done a pretty good job because some people are getting some money back. And it was never about that. The class action lawsuit was supposed to drag these cunts into court, make them publicly face up to what they've done, and to get some goddamn justice for the families of the people that fucking killed themselves over this. Fuck Bill Shorten. Fuck Gordon Legal. Absolute scum. Yeah, <laughs> I I feel like robo debt should be, and especially like the class action settlement. And I I feel like I've said this before, but it should be the point when people realise, well, legal action isn't coming to save us. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, you, it, like the the laws aren't necessarily coming to save you. Like there's all this there's all this sort of thing. Like you know, when when Sally McManus came in. Um, as the into the ACTU and had the whole line of changing the rules and everyone thought that's great you know if we're gonna break some laws because we've got to change the actual laws that are in place but what does that actually matter when the legal system that's set up to hold people to account still lets people down you know what 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 happens then you know a, a settlement can be good financially you know on the surface 
But where does that leave people? That no one was held to account by a settlement. Mm. No one has been forced to apologize. No one has had to sort of own up to the what they've done or account for the way in which RoboDebt was yeah. implemented. And I hope, I really hope this makes people think about the usefulness of constantly calling for royal commissions, mm. for class actions, for all those sorts of things. I'm dropping things all over my keyboard because I feel very <laughs> passionately about it. It's just I, I get very frustrated whenever I see people calling for those kinds of, you know, large-scale investigations because as has happened so constantly now from RoboDebt and from every single Royal Commission, they can make recommendations, they can make settlements, but if no one's actually held to account, what happens then? Yeah. What can we do yeah. next? So I really, I really hope people sort of think about this in what we can do to organise in 2021 when it comes down to people not having jobs, when it comes down to people needing money to survive, when uh, rental evictions get lifted and people are forced to leave their houses because they don't have, uh, you know, their rent is in arrears, what happens now? Because a class action isn't going to come to save you. A settlement isn't going to come to save you. What happens now is that you look at the person next to you and you decide, I've I fucking had it. <laughs> I need to organize and actually we need to help each other because no one's coming to save us. Yeah, it's absolutely shown. And I think most things this year have absolutely shown that the current systems and structures and people currently in place that are meant to maintain our society, regulate problems, keep things going, fundamentally do not work. Uh, we've seen this all over the world. We saw it in America where people like, ah, Trump will be stopped by by these these regulations, these rules and oh, systems. Oh, the investigation will show. Yeah. yeah. Like, mm. oh, nothing can be too bad because we have checks and balances. Turns out when those bad things actually do happen, those checks and balances have never really been tested and they mostly exist just to uphold the status quo. And when it's the status quo that is the problem, when the status quo is is actively working against all of us because the status quo is just code for Scott Morrison and a small bunch of people in power. Um, there's very little that the structures uh, can do about that. So we have to actually have people and unions and that ground swell of of bottom up kind of movements to to change things. Hmm. I think for me, the reason why it was among many different emotions so disappointing is because I allowed myself the barest little like bit of hope to think that maybe Bill Shorten with the Labour Party and Gordon Legal would go a, just a few steps further than we all knew that they would. Would actually yeah. try to win. Yeah, and it and it just highlighted essentially a material analysis of the situation. <laughs> but like <laughs> the Labour Party aren't your fucking friends. The Labour Party are in lockstep with the Liberal Party because they're all part of the political class. Yeah. Gordon Legal are on the, the, the top end of town. They got a nice payout for this. The Liberal Party avoided jail time. Labour avoided setting a precedent that would affect how they politic if they ever got into power again. They closed rank. They locked people out. I need to interject there. In, in terms of like Gordon Legal, what people also need to understand is that the political class is so tightly intertwined with, you know, um, the corporate class in Australia mm. that um, politicians uniquely come from these kind of backgrounds. You know, Bill mm. Shorten himself is a lawyer. 
Julia Gillard, yeah. a lawyer. You know, they all come from these firms. So they're, yeah. they're, they know how to work together for their own outcomes, not for yours. And, it, you know, they're, they're, they're both paid by the same people. We, like, we, we heard last week that Anthony Pratt, uh, you know, paid out hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to both the Liberals and the, and the, uh, the Labour Party. Mm, in political yeah. donations. Mm. Yeah, it might seem like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker are on opposite sides, but they're both owned by Disney. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a fun roundup for the not good enough top 10 of the year 2020 edition. <laughs> what a fun <laughs> note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, look, I just want to end this on a nice note and say it has been an absolute pleasure this year to record with you remotely. It has been a very bright spot. I, okay, sincerity warning coming up. It has been you such don't a warn. No, no warnings. <laughs> hit it. So it's get too late. Ernest. You're already, you already went sincere. Yeah, uh, sincere on main. Like it's been <laughs> such a bright spot in my year to record and talk to my friends every week. When I couldn't, you know, hang out with them at the pub and normally we'd Absolutely. be shouting each other in a group chat, but it's been nice to hash this out on a podcast for <laughs> everyone else to listen to. We're all in Melbourne and you might not be able to tell this while you're listening, but this has been the only thing keeping us sane. Yeah, my <laughs> God. So we just want to thank everyone who's also been on the podcast this year. So thanks to Cam Smith from the Hypothetical Institute and Gather Around Me podcasts. Thanks to Holly from the Renters and Housing Union. Thanks to Noon and Zach Snack from Ozpole Snack Pod. Thanks to Jim Malo of Domain, Junkie and 3RRR. Thanks to Tom Tanneke from The Poor Can Feed the Birds. And a big thank you to James Clark from No Turning Back and The Tomorrow Movement. Thanks so much, guys, for being on the podcast this year. We really loved having you on and looking forward to chatting to more people next year. We're here. Wow. Right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Not Good Enough. You can get in touch with us at NotGoodPod and all the socials or email us at notgoodpod at protonmail.com. And thanks everyone for listening. Here's the short list of all the nominees that didn't quite make it onto the Not Good Enough Top 10 of 2020. Pauline Hansen mailing stubby holders to Cop Tower. The Big Four Banks getting caught committing every single crime. Duke and Gorge. Dictator Dan. Jed, gas will be a transition fuel as necessary, Kearney. Angus Taylor. ScoMo on holiday. Channel 9 hosting a fundraiser for the LMP. Kyoto carryover credits. The Not Good Enough podcast. Bain Capital guts Virgin. Circo. Barnaby, snakes more of a threat than coronavirus Joyce. Lawyer X. Covered in smoke. Cop Tower. Stuart Robert attributing Centrelink's crash to a hacker attack. QAnon Australia. The COVID safe app. Not spending bushfire recovery money. Mounted police enforcing social distancing. Walk for the dole. Sovereign citizens. Jackie Lambie out of nowhere. Enemies of the state. Dan Andrews telling people to get on the beers. Wage theft. The state-based cyber attack that definitely actually happened. Christina Kersha Keneally and all her racist dog shit. Tim Wilson wanting to kill the bats. Anthony give the government space Albanese. BlackRock divesting from fossil fuels. Job keeper, job seeker. Sally McManus wanting to halve insecure work by 2030. Home builder. Jabberong.
Border Force not worrying about quarantine. George Pell getting released. Price hikes on uni fees. Lydia Thorpe. Kevin Rudd's News Corp petition. $60 billion budget black hole. TransClean and Transport Department being corrupt, not cleaning the Melbourne trains and trams. Fruit Farms. Adani changing their name. The Energy Roadmap. Glenis Bouchamp shredding the evidence. Dolomites. The states being thanked by the UN, but Scott Morrison being snubbed. Pete, actual Nazi Evans. Scott Morrison getting uninvited from a climate summit. Kanye getting a hologram of Kin K's dead father for her birthday. Catherine Murphy mocking the spelling of a welfare campaigner. Scott Morrison saying we don't have a history of slavery. Clean coal. Mean Girls Gate. Blaming arsonists. Get fucked from Nelligen. Lefty council victories. ScoMo being told to get off someone's lawn. Police Minister David Elliott firing illegal weapons. Lego cancelling their police sets. Pauline Hanson banned from the Today Show. Rachel Seward. Hottest spring on record. Not touching your face. Lang wishing for the CCP to stop our coal imports and it coming true. Victoria thumbs up to onshore gas. Hydrogen. Michael McCormack. Santos sponsoring a football match. Witness K. Big novelty checks. ALP Samiric branch stacking. Dutton getting the roni. Bridget McKenzie not losing her job. Come drop Twitter. Joel Fitzgibbon. Malcolm Turnbull's book. Aged care. Bushfire smoke causing tennis players to collapse during the Melbourne Open. Billionaire pandemic profiteers. The Ruby Princess and the other plague ships. The War Memorial getting $500 million for mental health. LMP Suka branch stacking. Public housing tower lockdown. Gladys being corrupt as fuck. Greg Hunt tweeting out an anti-mask infographic. Orange Rain. Daryl Maguire accidentally destroying evidence with a tractor. Colour-coded spreadsheets. Mick, young people should fear the police fuller. Wage theft amnesty. The footy club that ditched pokies. Black Lives Matter. Alan Tudge fucking kidnapping someone. Clickbait journalism. ScoMo getting the Legion of Merit award from Trump. Cops protecting Captain Cook statues. Stuart Robert. War crimes. Tanya, Pledge of Allegiance, Plibersec. Alan Tudge, Christian Porter, Fuckboy Gate, and the bushfires. Not Good Enough is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Um, we want to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And it's important to acknowledge that sovereignty in this country was never ceded. Uh, we've got a lot of terrible things happening. Uh, on land, that was actively stolen, and a lot of people working uh, to try and change some of that. So it's really important to remember where you are, and it's important to remember whose land you're on.